Hello, everyone. Welcome to FoxCast Legal Listening. We're pleased to present a new series of podcasts aimed at financial advisors featuring Josh Horn and Ernie Badway, who serve as co-chairs of Fox Rothschild's securities industry practice. In this series, we'll be exploring a range of potential risks that financial and investment advisors can face in their dealings with clients, as well as share the strategies, tactics, and techniques on how best to manage, mitigate, and if potentially avoid those risks. Today's podcast, the first in our series, will highlight some of the most pernicious practices that can turn into significant pitfalls for advisors. As I mentioned, we have with us today Josh Horn and Ernie Badway. Josh advises major financial services and advisory companies, as well as individual brokers, advisors, and counselors, defending against customer-initiated or intra-industry complaints. He also handled Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, SEC, and state matters on behalf of clients. Ernie represents corporations, limited liability companies, partnerships and financial institutions, such as broker-dealers, investment advisors, private equity and hedge funds, banks and insurance companies, among others. He also counsels and advises clients on the creation of broker-dealers, hedge funds, and investment advisors, as well as compliance and regulatory matters relating to their operations. Both Ernie and Josh frequently contribute to the firm's Securities Compliance Sentinel blog. Josh, Ernie, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing today? Good. Good afternoon. Thanks a lot uh, for the introduction. Sure. Uh, so let's jump right in. What are some of the most pernicious practices that occur? Outside of outright theft, that's, that does happen. And, and unfortunately, I think what we see is in the clients who are elderly uh, are often, unfortunately, at risk for that. And we had a situation once where an advisor uh, basically stole money from a client who was in, had Alzheimer and then tried to cover his tracks. But he was found out and prosecuted. Yeah, I think I think Josh is absolutely correct. But the one thing I do want to point out is that just because someone accuses you of some type of pernicious act doesn't mean that that's what you're guilty of. Unfortunately, I think both Josh and I see an awful lot of this. A lot of people, when they lose money, they automatically assume that the broker or the investment advisor is their insurer and uh, that they have to uh, pay. And there's a lot of claimants' lawyers and plaintiffs' lawyers out there who will say certain things uh, uh, and claim fraud or some other type of pernicious act when, in fact, it's not there. And oftentimes what we found that, that when you have uh, volatile markets like we have now or like the bear market of 2000 to 2003 or even 2008 to 2010 or so, you see an uptick in claims uh, for that very reason because people will have lost their positions in the market, will have lost a fair amount of money. And, you know, in America, it's all about who you can blame in, uh, as opposed to accepting blame yourself. Yeah, I just finished up an arbitration, a FINRA arbitration, where a customer claimed uh, that they were owed, um, that, they were, that they had been put into an annuity. They were a senior couple, that they had been put into an annuity that made payouts, and the payouts had, um, you know, the distributions were exceeded uh, what they had actually put in, and they still claimed that they lost money. They refused to take into consideration that they had gotten payouts and everything, and they filed an arbitration. And uh, what I found just troubling was the claimant's lawyer, when my client didn't want to, my client was a broker-dealer and didn't want to pay anything in terms of a settlement, uh, the claimant's broker, act, the claimant's attorney actually said, you know, does your client realize that this is just a cost to do in business? And it was very troubling. Unfortunately, I've never had that said to me, but I, <laughs> I know I've had plenty of cases where that, in fact, has been the case. I even had one similar to that where it was about an outside investment, and the person that was suing the broker was the president of the outside investment. 
And so that was, you know, one of the more ridiculous situations where our guy was accused of doing all these wrongdoings. But I think sometimes, though, where there is problems, where there are problems, excuse me, where there's a long-standing relationship with a client, where the broker or advisor becomes um, intellectually lazy in the way he or she are handling those clients, and uh, it's not necessarily pernicious, but it's certainly negligent in the way they handle some of their clients. Judge is absolutely correct. You see a lot of that when they just basically slip and fall down and just forget to do what they're supposed to do. One of the things that both Josh and I advise our broker, dealer, and investment clients uh, about is to have constant contact with their customers. You know, to like keep them in the loop to let them know. You know, they can't just assume that the clients are picking up and opening up their statements every single month. You know, they should be made aware of it. I know, like for example, with my investment advisor clients, I make I advise them to send out a monthly email, you know, indicating certain market conditions, and you know, for them to expect and to give them a call. Um, and you know, especially with electronic media, it's very helpful. And it's easy. Yes, it's easy to stay in front of your clients. And what I I often speak about risk and risk avoidance for broker dealer and financial advisor clients. And the one thing I say about being in constant contact is just another way to market your services mm -hmm. uh, to your client. And so, you know, the loudest wheel gets the most oil. So if you stay in contact, you should avoid, hopefully, these pitfalls, but at the same time, maybe even generate new business. And that's where we add value. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, guys. Thanks for those um, stories that you had to offer. Um, so can you talk specifically about some of the situations that can crop up? Sure. I think I think you got to start off when you when you start looking at some of these like situations. I think you really have to start off at the initial relationship. You know, we both agree that a lot of times these are come up from long term client relationships, but. Your hope is that every client you develop is going to be a long-term relationship. And so when that happens, you have to make sure that you have all of the proper paper paperwork in place, what they're looking to accomplish, and how that may change over time. For example, if you get a new client where, who has just been married or been sort of married for a few years, has their first kid, um, you know, and you get that information, keep in mind that they're... Um, that their needs today are not going to be their needs in 10 years. And you have to mark that and you have to follow that. You have to make sure that that changes. You know, you change as the time changes. And to pick up on Ernie's point, we have a, a partner who we work with um, had had this story he would always tell, and I think it fits particularly with the account opening process, that when he played high school football, kids on the football team would always say, well, that's not where I didn't make that bad play. I didn't make that bad play. And the coach always said, you know what, son, the film don't lie. <laughs> and so kind of our, our corollary to that is you know, the paperwork frequently doesn't lie, although sometimes it does. And so when you're opening an account, it's really important to make sure you take a detailed history to make sure that this is actually somebody, number one, you want to be doing business with, and number two, someone who um, meets the type of client that you want to have. When I first started practicing law, I believed that I could represent anybody and anyone. And you that can. you you know, unfortunately, sometimes that's not true. You know, as much as we'd like to think that uh, we could represent everyone, it just doesn't happen that way. There are personalities that get in place uh, where that doesn't happen. And I tell my clients all the time, as much as they want business, as much as they want new clients, they have to really make some very difficult choices at the very beginning part of the relationship. For example, if they find out that their quote unquote new client has used or gone through two or three other brokers or financial advisors or investment advisors, that's a red flag 
that this particular client may be a problem. Not every client has to be taken on. Uh, and it's better to keep that in mind um, you know, going forward. There's also another little trick that they can do. Um, if a client uh, has instigated litigation against their broker in the past, uh, guess what? They're more likely than not to instigate litigation against the broker in the future. And I know FINRA, for example, trumpets its um, uh, broker check. One of the things that you can do with broker check is not only look at brokers, but there's an arbitration uh, component to it on the FINRA, FINRA website where you can actually look up if, there have, if this claimant or if this customer has brought any suits or claims against other brokers or investment advisors. And I think that's something that brokers should check uh, before they get into it. Yeah, and to pick up on Ernie's point, another useful tool that I've told brokers is you know, Google a new client. You'd be very shocked about what you find uh, regarding your client, including possible other litigation that they may have been involved in. And the other thing about red flags I think is important is if you have a long-standing relationship, if something changes uh, in that relationship, you may have to revisit your entire relationship. So, for example, if, if there was a husband and wife and, and they get um, divorced, well, you're probably going to have to revisit what you're doing for uh, one or both of those individuals if you're still going to be representing them. But at the same time, if they ignore your advice, you can't, you can't ignore that either. Uh, in a situation I had some years ago where the broker had a very specific financial plan set up for the customer, which had uh, took into account certain cash positions uh, that the customer then could use to you know, fund his lifestyle. But it didn't take into account the fact that the customer wanted to buy an $80,000 Lexus. And so when the customer decided to do that, the broker did the right thing and sent a letter saying, you know, I just want to make sure you're aware that by doing that, you're basically destroying the financial plan that we set up for you. Well, the client ignored that and then he sued the broker for losses he then sustained. And so those losses would not have been as greater. They could have been recovered much more easily when the market picked up, but for him taking out more cash than he should have, where basically what we call cannibalized his account. Yeah, and that's actually something very important because you know a lot of the a lot of our clients spend an awful lot of time, um, you know they're not what you know euphemistically was called stock jockeys. You know what I'm saying? They really you know take care and pride in putting together plans and uh, financial uh, financial systems uh, that they can then offer to their clients. Uh, and the problem is, is that many of these plans are long-term plans. That's not necessarily a problem. I shouldn't say that. But if things change, the clients have to be aware that if they move out of these particular plans, you know, things can happen. I'll not, never forget one time I ran represented an insurance agent who put all of his clients in annuities and whole life policies. And then what happened is, is that a lot of people didn't realize that those premiums, you know, sometimes rose, sometimes, you know, like weren't, like weren't steady, and that you didn't really build up a lot of cash in them. And that what happened was is that even though they were paying a lot in premiums as compared to say term life, uh, term life uh, policies, uh, what happened was is that when they had to break the policy, when they couldn't like continue with the policy, they didn't get much back in cash, and they were upset at the insurance broker um, in, for for putting them in this particular product. And I think one of the biggest takeaways that uh, that I find useful is that you know if you have clients that continue to ignore your advice, you have to document it. And ultimately, you, you can't be afraid to fire a client. 
um, partner of ours has said to me as a young lawyer here at the firm is that sometimes the most important client you have is the one that you don't have. And so what he meant by that was, you know, sometimes you're going to be better off getting rid of a client when they start to become a real problem. And you can't be afraid to do that because you, ultimately you have your own reputation as the most important thing to protect. And a client that's going to continually ignore your advice and disregard any warnings you provided him or her is certainly a client that's going to sue you when they lose money. Yeah, without question. What about in cases where you have a really strong advisor-client relationship? Are there pitfalls that can occur then at that point? Of course, you know, it just, it's, there's no such thing as a airtight uh, advisor, uh, broker, client relationship. Remember what we're talking about. We're talking about people's money. Uh, and other than maybe their family, uh, probably nothing is stronger to them. And it makes it strong, makes it stronger to them. And that what I have found is I have found when you have those types of strong relationships, that's where I actually find brokers and financial advisors really losing perspective. Uh, for example, um, I've, had, I've represented a number of brokers who have altered addresses, not for any benefit that they get, but really for the benefit of their clients. Like for example, they may be able to get a good product for them, but since they live in a particular state, they can't get that particular product. It's not approved for that particular state. So they switch addresses to a state where it is permissible and they do that. And I've actually had several FINRA enforcement proceedings based upon that alone. I've also had clients, and this to me is just amazing to talk about strong relationships. People who have had um, strong relationships over a long period of time uh, where they have actually uh, made payments for a particular client because they're going through some financial trouble. Uh, that's not permissible under FINRA's rules. And so you really have to be aware of that, you know, going into a relationship that no matter how strong, you still have to, as Josh said before, protect yourself. And to give the converse of what Ernie said, you know, there's been situations that I've dealt with where the broker has quote unquote borrowed money from his or her client, which is also uh, not kosher with FINRA and the SEC, and so you can, you should never, ever be in a position where you're doing that because uh, it's just not permissible. And the other thing, you know, when you have long-standing and close relationships, sometimes we found that, you know, brokers have uh, a fair amount of what I call intellectual laziness, and in particular will do things that probably shouldn't be done. For example, if it's a non-discretionary account, meaning the client is supposed to be consulted before any trading is done, the broker, because he or she thinks they know the client so well, will, yeah, I'm not going to call this time, I'm not going to email this time, and just start trading on the account, and uh, which is you know unauthorized trading. And so we had a situation not too long ago where there was a claim of close to a million dollars of unauthorized trading losses. And in the end, you know what I believe was there was an unwritten acknowledgement between the two that the broker could have discretion, but since his firm didn't allow for discretionary accounts, the client then used it against him in the arbitration. Um, and so in, not, in, in that instance, neither of them could say it was a discretionary account because the broker would get in trouble because he wasn't allowed to have a discretionary account and the, and the customer wouldn't be able to recover his money because then the trading would have been fine. I, and I, you know, I want to add to that, and Josh had mentioned something before, what we see a lot of in some of these senior situations where senior invest, investors who are seniors 
are actually bringing claims against brokers and advisors. One of the interesting things, and I just happened to be speaking with someone at FINRA about this particular issue. FINRA has this new system set up where seniors, they have a new hotline where seniors can call for investment advice and complaints. Uh, and one of the things that they're finding, and it's, 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 it's a very interesting, um, very interesting point, um, not only is our population aging, okay, but our broker-dealer and financial advisor community is also aging as well. Um, and what we also find is that there really has not been a great influx of millennials and people younger than millennials into the financial services industry. It, the, the, it has actually aged, the average age of people in the financial services industry has actually grown. And many of these brokers and advisors are not retiring. And they've had these relationships over many years. And some of the things that FINRA is now hearing, it's completely amazing to me. Uh, because what they're hearing is, and, and Josh mentioned about discretionary accounts or unauthorized trades, one particular story just struck me. A senior person called the FINRA hotline and said they didn't know what they could do. They didn't know what to do. Their broker, who they had a very long-term relationship with, um, just executed transactions in a particular security for them uh, that they did not authorize. Okay. However, in the conversation, they told the FINRA person that, in fact, they had authorized those transactions but eight months before. And eight months before, the transactions had not been done. And they were very concerned that their broker was, for lack of a better term, losing it. And they didn't know what to do. You know, it wasn't like there was a great monetary loss, but one of the things that they felt was, um, you know, that they didn't know what to do. And that's a very long-winded way of saying that if you have a strong relationship, and I tell my broker clients who've been in the business for many years and have these strong relationships, you gotta come up with a succession policy. You know, I know it's tough. I know you don't necessarily want to lose control. People are living longer and having more active lives, but you know, and it's not the securities business is no longer a quote young person's game. You know, people who are older, you know, as Josh is very old, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> younger than you, <laughs> you know, can attest. Um, you know, people can last a long time in this business, but you still need a succession. You still need a backstop. You can't just go it alone. And to pick up on Ernie's point, it's just as important um, when you have clients that are getting into an older age that you have a plan to deal with them. And FINRA and the SEC in the last year or so have really focused on this issue. And so, for example, there's even been su suggestions of you know, when somebody turns 65, you basically have to make sure FINRA just came out with it, but make sure that, and the SEC, uh, make sure that you have in place uh, the ability to have a trusted contact and the ability to freeze the account if you think that there's something improper going on, because unfortunately sometimes customers get abused financially by family members. And so there's greater and greater pressure on brokers and financial advisors to make sure that you're basically the guardian as well of your client particularly as they get older, and I think you have to take more and more care when they do get older to make sure, you know, is there somebody I can trust? Is there a power of attorney in the event that the client has the inability to make a financial decision? If there's not, if you don't have the paperwork in place, the broker, dealer, or investment advisor has little choice but to go to court and to seek relief. And then you have to contact a lawyer and it gets very expensive. 
um, which you know that's our business model. But you know we also <laughs> want to coach people to avoid that as well. Yeah, I think it's critical that you know broker dealers protect themselves and financial advisors protect themselves. You know when they have clients in that particular position. You know there's nothing wrong with asking for a power of attorney or asking the client, do they have a power of attorney? Who have they granted that power of attorney to? You know because in, you know there's nothing wrong with broaching that topic. It's important. Some clients, if they push back and say, I don't want to tell you, then you need to inform those clients about why you're asking, or you should actually inform them right away, and you should let them know that you know this is a. Uh, um, you know, you need to make sure that their funds and that their assets are protected going forward. And one of the interesting things, at least I can give a real-world circumstance as well, with uh, a parent of my, one of my parents who you know, has some uh, issues, and so on her account and documents, you know, my sister and I signed as basically having a power of attorney, and so by doing so, basically, we have put ourselves in a fiduciary relationship vis-a-vis -vis my mother and, and the account. And so which obviously I don't have a problem with, but that's a, that's a useful tool, particularly if you have older clients, that you, if you change your account forms to have that some sort of uh, additional signatory on the account so there's, you have some level of cover in the event that something should go wrong with your client, that you have a decision maker that has already admitted to the fact that they have a heightened obligation to your customer. So I think that's a useful tool which helps protect the firms uh, and your reputation at the same time as protecting your client. You know, I think there's one other, you know, on sort of a di different note, I think there's one other thing that people have to be aware of, and, you know, even in strong relationships, and Josh mentioned it before, and we were talking about, um, you know, sending out, like when I mentioned about sending out monthly um, alerts to customers, essentially, and that is email communications. You know, you have to be very cognizant when you do emails that, um, emails are not a conversation. Uh, it's not a telephone call. It is a written document that will come back to bite you. So um, when you draft something, you want to make sure that everything that's contained in that email is accurate at the time that you know you have written it. And you don't want to put anything in there that could be then used against you down the road. Uh, in particular, what you don't want to put in there is you don't want to put anything that's false, that you know to be false. You know, even if you're attempting to just placate the customer, you don't want to do something like that. What I tell uh, clients is, you know, don't put in an email that which you're not willing to see on the evening news. Yes. And if, and if you're looking at an email you're about to send to a client and say, hmm, I don't think I would want to see that on the evening news or blown up a hundred times as an exhibit in a trial, then it's probably not the email you should be sending. And emails, I think people get lazy because like Ernie said, they view them almost like, um, a, a, uh, like texting, you know, like it's a conversation and it's not. It's, it's a letter just like the old letters of days gone by where we actually used the postal service to send something. It's just as significant. It will always be there. You can't erase it and you're going to have to live with the consequences. It, it, and even texting, even texting, texting will live forever. It is just like an email. You know, you can, you know, despite uh, the silliness of Roger Goodell, you know, texts survive Everything you know, the phone company can read. You know, can get those texts. Those texts go to somebody else. Just because you hit delete doesn't mean the text is gone. Just like if you hit delete, it doesn't mean the email is gone. They are still there. And one last thing on technology is social media because it's just as problematic on social media. Some brokers and advisors like to con contact clients through, for example, LinkedIn or Facebook page, and all that is recoverable as well, regardless if you take your page down. 
uh, it always exists somewhere and will be found if there's going to be litigation. So don't, you should, well, first of all, you should never use your social media, I think, for communicating with your client because, number one, it's typically not going to be supervised by your firm. So if you get caught for saying something inappropriate through social media, you're going to have a problem with the firm. And number two, I think people get overly loose in social media, uh, more so than even in email and texting. That's true. Josh, Ernie, thank you so much. Uh, listeners, if you would like to speak with Josh or Ernie about financial or investment advisor issues, you can reach Josh at 215-299-2184 or jhorn at foxrothschild.com or Ernie at 212-878-7986 or ebadway at foxrothschild.com. Fox Rothschild LLP is a full-service law firm with more than 600 lawyers in 21 offices coast-to-coast. We serve businesses of all sizes as well as individuals in more than 50 areas of law. Clients choose us because we understand their issues, their priorities, and the way they think. We become trusted business advisors working in the trenches with those we serve. At Fox, we care about your success as much as you do.